Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have with me Sonny Desai. Sonny is the founder and CEO of Mississippi-based Desai Companies, a holding company which focuses on real estate, construction, and e-commerce. Their primary business is Desai Hotel Group, a vertically integrated hotel company. Sonny, thank you so much for joining us. We connected through YPO, just an incredible community, and you have a very compelling story. So let's jump right into it. Give us the background, how you got into this business, where you're from, uh, etc. Yeah, uh, Brian, thanks for having me on. I'm happy to share my story. So born and raised in Mississippi, my uh, my family, my parents immigrated here in the early 80s uh, into to Mississippi. I grew, grew up in a small town in Lexington, Mississippi, and went to school at Mississippi State University. So and after college, moved back home because um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my family had been in the, I guess, motel business, you call it for 30 plus years, and actually grew up and similar to a lot of other younger Indian hoteliers, we grew up in the hotel business. And when I went to college, I knew one thing, and that was that I did not want to be in the hotel business, because (laughs) just being around it all the time, it's just like, that's the one thing. So I finished college, I got my uh, bachelor's, and then I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I but I knew one thing, and so offered me this opportunity. He's very conservative when it comes to investments and growth. And after you know ten plus years of not really doing any new projects, he he asked me if I wanted to do a um, tow project for him. My thought was, okay, great. I don't have anything to do right now. I'm going to build this hotel for him in this small market, and then after that, I'll figure out what I want to do. So. What happened though in the process? It was really cool. I developed a hotel in Winona, Mississippi, small town. Made a lot of mistakes, but I learned a lot. And I was using everything I learned in school. My degrees were in 
real estate and banking and finance. And I started, what I realized was I really enjoyed that the whole process because every day was different. You know, it was a little bit challenging, but we learned a lot. Then I realized I could turn it into a business model. So what I did afterwards is started raising capital and start, I found the next project and then started learning more and more about the hotel industry. After the hotels were finished, we ended up forming a management company. And, you know, so 10 years later, I had this I think eight or nine hotels and all branded by Hilton, Marriott, or IHG. And so that's kind of where I ended up, I'd say, in 2020. And that road was not, it was not an easy road. We learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes, particularly with architects and general contractors. You know, they're all not created the same, you know, and just because somebody's the lowest bid or has the biggest company doesn't mean they're the best contractors for the job. So made a lot of mistakes, learned a lot from that. And then eventually, you know, we just perfected our model and got better and better. So we went through a pretty tough time, I'd say three or four years ago. These contractor issues kind of piled on each other. We even had a GC go bankrupt and one of our one of our deals like, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's one of those things that you can't you just can't do anything about, right? You can review their financials all day long, you acquire bonds, but if something happens like that, it's just, it is what it is. So you got to kind of roll with the punches and then and um, keep going. Well, we finally kind of got through all that stuff, and it was year you know beginning of 2020. You know, it was just things were starting to kind of get better you know, stabilizing and, you know, fruits of all the labor earlier on were starting to come through because we're all our systems we kept on putting in place starting to show out. And then the pandemic hit. And that was kind of a wake up call because hotels got hit very, very hard. Overnight, we went from, you know, running 70 70 plus percent occupancy in majority of our hotels to some of them running, you know, 15%, 10%. But we also had hotels that never dropped below 50, but we were in a pretty, we were in an okay spot. But what made me realize was, uh, you know, I, I kind of have all my eggs in one basket in one industry. And, you know, I, I like to consider myself a investor or a capital allocator. But then I realized I was like, I'm not even following my own rules and diversification as I'm, you know, I have all my assets in this one asset class. So what ended up happening afterwards was I had this opportunity to monetize our hotel management company in a way where we would outsource the management company for, you know, for a given period of time. And then I would get a lump sum of cash. And that was probably one of the pivotal points for me because I was able to then take that and make some investments that have turned out pretty well. But more importantly, it opened my eyes on what other types of asset classes are within real estate and you know even some other alternative investments and how things can be correlated to each other, how I could take my experience in the hotel industry and keep expanding in, in, def- in different markets. But the real wake up was my leveraging labor. I, th- I like to use the term labor arbitrage because it's I truly think it is. Again, three or four years ago, when we started, I guess, playing with the idea of hiring people internationally and to do ad- administrative tasks. And you've probably heard the concept of virtual assistants. And we tried companies and stuff in the past. And it's just, it, it worked okay. Then we really kind of went a little bit deeper into it and started recruiting. And, you know, start off with a couple of people. It took a long time, made a lot of mistakes of, you know, where do you want to go for the right right candidates? How do you recruit them? How do you get people to trust you? And so it's just all these issues started popping up. But over that 2020, when we, now we didn't, I went from having, you know, to deal with 250 employees down to, you know, 10 became a lot easier. So we started actually leaning into that model a bit more and affecting it. So now I think we have over 20 
that work for us virtually. That has kind of become our competitive advantage a little bit. And so moving fast forwarding now, as we kind of have gotten back, you know, COVID, I would say it's primarily behind us. We've really leaned into that model and then started implementing a lot of the virtual team into our hotels. Our, so we're also in like land development, real estate, you know, subdivisions, residential, single family homes. Just we threw a lot of lines out there to try to see what, what would stick. So turns out that flipping houses is, is not really scalable. I, and I thought I could do it with the VA, with, we call it the VA model, virtual assistant model, but it didn't turn out to be true. So we're kind of, we're doing that a little bit, but not a lot. Land development has actually been a really, really good business for us. And then going, coming full circle back to the hotels, we're now able to figure out a way to actually make the hotel model even better because we're taking away a lot of the duties that normally would fall on the hotel, the general manager and centralize those, making the job a little easier and increasing our profit margins for, for our hotels. So let's rewind the tape a little bit because that was a lot. Yeah. Why did your family leave India in the 80s? Opportunity. You know, when in India, there's only so much you can do. It's not like the United States where you can work your way. If you put in hard work and effort, you can save up and keep growing or get into your own business. There's there's a lot of barriers to growth in India. Obviously, the, the, the caste system back then had a lot to do with it. Not as much prevalent now, but um, still had big problem back then. So it's been 30 plus years. So. And what's the most stark memory you have of working in the hotel space when you were young? <laughs> this is it's kind of funny. Because we, these, these stories, right, of like the free labor, right, of a lot of these families leveraging their children to provide back of the house work. And that was, uh, you know, my business partner is Indian. That's how a lot of people in that community grew up. And it really has shaped the way they think about work ethic, culture, business, and family business in particular. Yeah, yeah, no. You know, I don't think we were ever asked to do a lot. We just did. We helped. I remember before, as a young male, before my voice changed, I would, you know, rush because I wanted to believe you. If the phone was ringing, I'd go answer the phone. And I'd remember them thinking I was a lady, <laughs> you know, because like, like those are the things I remembered. And then I just thought that was normal, you know, that you're working, working in a family business, saving every penny. And it's just this hard work was kind of ingrained in us from, from day one. The biggest, my parents never asked me to really do much in front of the work side because they, they really wanted me to focus on school. Like making good grades was by far the number one priority. You've stayed in the hotel industry, which many people do. Some people don't. Do you think that was a conscious choice on your part? Is that something? I mean, you said earlier you never wanted to go into the hotel business, but here you are running a portfolio of, of hotels and in the hospitality space. What drew you back to that? So I think there has a lot to do with access to information. And I'm really learning this as I'm going into other business lines, right? And that's why I'm getting back more into hotel focus, which still remains primarily our business. Because in the hotel industry, as of right now, I could probably, if I have a problem, I know five people that I can call that are very, very high level, very specific that can answer that problem. On land development, it would take me a lot more calls, a lot more time because I haven't built those relationships yet. So when I was starting off, it was a lot easier for me to use my father's connections to keep growing and, and build more connections. Uh, obviously, over time, they became my connections and I grew my network. 
But I guess to answer your question, it's like more of the network effect of being in that industry. And I don't know the exact statistic, but it's somewhere above 70% of all select service hotels are owned by people of Indian descent. So it's a large community there as well. Yeah. And and I've had some exposure to it through my business partner and others, and it's an incredible network. And some people have just created unbelievable businesses. What are some of the lessons learned since you've been in this space and maybe some of the misconceptions that other people would have about those kind of family hotel businesses that we, as a white person, we hear a lot about and see a lot about, but we don't see behind the curtain many times. Yeah, it's all it's it's all not it's not all great because I I think a common misconception is that well and I'm comparing to a, a YPO friend of mine that is raising capital too and yes a lot of my investors are Indian and you know it's kind of how we got started he thinks that there's just a big pool of Indian investors out there that just go left and right you know just keep investing I think it used to be like that I think that's changed a lot now there's a lot more people like me and Carl, your partner, are doing similar things, uh, raising capital and putting putting capital to work. I think that's probably a misconception that's out there. I also think that people don't see, even though the network effect is there, the competitiveness is even higher. Like it, because everybody knows each other, and they're all we're all going after the same thing, building Hilton Marriott hotels in certain markets. Like it just becomes a super super competitive thing. Also, some potential headwinds down the road if they if every if everyone in the hotel industry only keeps reinvesting in the hotel industry, there may become some saturation. So, as time progresses, I think you will see that the more disciplined approaches will last. You referenced this earlier, but obviously, COVID a huge disruptor to the hospitality industry and continues to be. Could you maybe walk us through that first thirty days, three months, six months? What happened? How did you react? And some of the lessons learned by going through that massive change within the space? Yeah, I distinctly remember laying in bed one night and thinking, well, crap, this is really going to hurt us because they're talking about lockdowns overseas. And it's only a matter of time before it comes here. And that means all travel will basically stop. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, well, if our industry gets hit that hard, there's probably going to be some sort of government bailout, which didn't come, by the way, for us specifically. So that was kind of one of the things I thought about. But then the other key things were I did not panic. Like, it is what it is, right? What are the things you can control? And I, one thing, the, the few things I could control is our relationships with our banks, right? So we got very proactive. I was setting up phone calls, giving them updates on a weekly basis. They were actually using me as a resource, like what's going on in the market. And they were, as I was updating them, it, I think it made them a little bit more comfortable. And then knowing, okay, hey, we'll give this, we'll give them, you know, three months, six month deferment of payments to help us kind of wide through this right wave. I'd say those were the biggest things. And then, you know, it did last for a good. Some hotels were were quick to rebound. I think we we had one hotel that was never dropped below fifty percent occupancy, and it was back to normal after the three month deferment that we got. And we hadn't looked back since. There are others that were a little longer. The ones that what we saw were the core, more corporate driven, more urban locations were hit a little harder. Some of our tertiary markets did did a lot better. And did you lean on? You referenced the community, this incredible network. Of people in the hospitality space, did you lean on people like your dad and and uncles and others that have been through cycles and and difficult periods of time during the pandemic? 
So, you know, the funny thing is because of our newer generation, they were leaning more on us <laughs> because we younger technology, we just keep in touch with a lot of, and what was kind of incredible, there was a, a WhatsApp group that was created at over. Yeah, I was going to say, I've, I've heard of these like, you know, urban legends of these like unbelievable WhatsApp text chains and message groups that just kind of evolved during this period of time. Yeah. So it was, uh, I think a few weeks after that, and it was like somebody started it and then, then they started, everyone added every hotel owner that they knew. And before you knew it, it was like a couple hundred people and just all day long, it was talking about PPP loans and idle loans and you know what to do. And people were asking for advice on rates. And so obviously the more experienced people would kind of chime in and kind of give them some advice. So it was unique. It was the first time I've ever seen the entire community kind of come together because we all knew we were going to be impacted very heavily. So we're recording this in Q4 of 2021. What is the state of play within your hospitality portfolio? All except two hotels are back above pre-COVID numbers. So we've ridden the wave pretty well and continue to keep pushing on that. So the two hotels are, it's more of a geopolitical issue, I'd say, with a local city without giving too much information. It's, it's more has to do with the city itself versus the market in general. And what are some of the permanent changes you think COVID will cause within the hotel industry? I've heard a lot about a lower workforce, maybe outsourcing some services that before were in-house. I know employee pay has been a challenge. What do you think will be some of the lasting effects of COVID within the hotel world? The biggest is, and everyone's talking about this, right? It's the great resignation. And I think what's really happening is that, you know, you know, I don't want to get into policy discussions here about um, how what, what the government does, because that's, that's something we can't control. And in a period of time, when you've given benefits to people and incentivize them to not work, people get used to not working, right? And then they almost feel a little entitled to it. And so I think that has kind of shifted mentality a little bit of, hey, I don't have to do this job. So I'm going to wait and figure out what like what my options are. That has caused, obviously, just in you know higher rates of pay. I feel like that's going to keep going on unless something changes. I see a hard shift. I don't think you're ever going to go backwards in that sense. People aren't going to be used to having less pay. Obviously, with inflation, there's a whole other discussion there on on what's going to happen there. But the other other items I would say is I don't think there's going to ever be a like no travel. I feel from the pandemic more than anything, everyone's learned that we do need to see each other, especially. I heard was JP Morgan, one of those guys mentioned like you know, no one's ever closed a deal over Zoom, right? So the vital travel I think will happen. However, I was talking to one of my attorney friends and he told me that, you know, all of the basic stuff that they do that normally require travel, it's all gone to Zoom and it's actually more efficient in Zoom. So I feel like there's gonna be a mix back. There's gonna be some things that realize that hey, you have to travel and some areas of company, some areas of business are gonna be like, you know, Zoom is actually more effective because I don't need to be there in person for that, which in effect could have a different, what do you call it, effect on everything else because now with technology, everything becomes more and more efficient. So they could actually take on more work. The arguments could be, could just cause more growth. So, And this labor arbitrage that you referenced, the virtual assistant product that you have created, has that been reinforced by COVID in terms of where you think the industry is headed? I think so. If you're talking, if you're asking about the hotel industry in Pacific, so what I've realized, 
a while back was, and I'm, I'm very specifically talking about select service hotels, that select service hotels are almost becoming a commodity. Could sense. you define select service versus maybe you know give people a little oh. bit of context if you don't know this space as well? Yes, yes. So I, I'm, I'll use brands so you can kind of select services where it's not a full service. So a full service, you get, you know, you have a bar, restaurant, you have dry cleaning service and concierge, you know, that's your Ritz Carlson's of the world. Then you, you know, you have limit select service or what we'll call some, some of its limited services, like your Hampton Inns, Garden Inns, courtyards, you know, so there's very limited in what you're provided. So that's kind of how we define it. And what I've seen in the industry is, is I starting to become a commodity in the sense that, you know, if you build the highest, the nicest Hampton Inn on the block, that does not mean you're going to make, if you spend twice as much money, you're not going to, on the building, you're not going to make twice as much money because at the end of the day, they could always go to the courtyard or go to the garden inn or any other, for, it becomes a price war at that point. If you build a nicer, you may get a little bit of premium, but how long is that going to last until the next person builds a nicer one, right? So, and at the end, it eventually levels out. So the real name of the game in, in the future is going to be reducing cost. Because that's the only way. If you're capped by your revenue that your market can give you, then the only other way to have outsized returns is to lower your cost or your operating cost. And with our labor, with our arbitrage and labor arbitrage model, we've actually figured out how to do that and scale it. So I feel like that's going to be a competitive advantage for us over others in the future. And you know, it's not like a secret weapon. I think it's going to be very difficult for people to do to copy my model. But you know, down the road, I think there's going to be technology and stuff that comes into play. It's going to make it easier to leverage that as well. I want to hear your thoughts about inflation, which very topical right now. You know, the Fed just signaled they're going to raise rates next year in 2022. They're going to stop their bond purchasing program. The markets have reacted fairly positively to it. Real estate is famously known as a great hedge against inflation. Hotels are typically one of the best hedges because you can essentially reset rates theoretically every day. Are you seeing that play out in your portfolio today? I am seeing, yes. I'm seeing asset values rise. I am seeing acquisitions pricing become very competitive. People are paying a lot of money right now. The only thing that I would say is I construction prices. That's one thing that I'm, I'm a little concerned on. If that doesn't come down, I just don't see the valuation making sense too much. It's too much risk. There's no risk. You're not getting your risk premium for building a hotel. So I think you have to be very selective and very smart on how you develop assets. But to answer your question about inflation, I think it's definitely it's here. You know, and you're right. Hotels being one of the the best real estate classes to fight inflation because an apartment complex, it's a one year lease agreement, right? And it just takes may take a full year to cycle to increase your rates versus I could do it instantly with the hotel. Where are you seeing the best opportunity today in the hotel investment space? And what are some things that you're staying away from? You reference construction costs, new development. Where are you playing right now? We we are actively looking for construction deals if we can find it. Have not been too successful there, just to be candid. We have seen our main focus right now. Our niche has been trying to find foreclosed hotels in secondary and tertiary markets. We focus on secondary and tertiary markets because uh, a lot of the institutional guys don't just don't play in those markets. So we're able to get a, a higher cap rate on the acquisition, and we with our model we're able to you know show better returns throughout the life cycle. And the reason we like the foreclosures is because I again we're getting a better price on the asset. And there, and what happened back in twenty twenty during the pandemic is there's a lot of 
CMBS borrowers, if you're not familiar with if your listeners are not familiar, with commercial mortgage-backed securities where basically it's a non-recourse loan that's you know can tie be tied up for five or ten years, and very strict guidelines. It's not like a community bank. So when we were talking about going, when I was talking about having talks with our bankers, that was a community bank. We were able to talk to them. They were able to give us three, six-month deferments. Well, CMBS doesn't play by the same rules. They've got bondholders that they have to service, and they're not very flexible. So you know, when the pandemic happened, I think there was a lot of hotels that were kind of on the brink. Some borrowers had probably over-leveraged a little bit. So then they started handing back the keys. It was like, well, I'm not going to make these payments. you know. And then special servicers got overloaded. Uh, they got over way overloaded because it, not only do you have these borrowers that are giving back the keys, you have borrowers that are missing payments, not necessarily wanting to get back the keys, but still talking. So you have a huge percentage of your portfolio, your master, the master servicer has to move in from master servicing into special servicing. So that just created a big backlog. And I think finally, that backlog is starting to clear. So these special servicers are either moving these back into the special to the master servicer by working out deferment agreements or whatnot. And then, or now they're getting to the point where they're unloading some of these assets, which we're starting to see that now. I think 2022, you will see a lot more hotel auctions. And not because the hotels are doing bad. It's just because of the timing of how that played out. So we're very bullish on making a lot of plays on foreclosed hotels. We've actually... We've got one under the contract right now, just completed a raise for, and we're, we're making offers on multiple other ones. Yeah, we, we do a lot of CMBS work. In the height of the pandemic, we you know had some issues in our portfolio, specifically office buildings. And <laughs> we would call the special servicer, master servicer, and they would say, if it's not a hotel deal, don't call me. I mean, maybe they just were triaging, right? Because they were getting inundated. At the same time, those groups don't want to own and operate hotels. That's not their business. And so that is one of the, if you look at the CMBS numbers, the hotel default rate has been, you know, creeping up high teens, low twenties percentile. And so I agree with you. I do think there will be some washout next year, depending on what else happens with Omicron and God knows what else. And what are some things that you're staying away from? Maybe some hotel deals or opportunities that you've heard about others pursuing or that you've seen that just not your cup of tea, that too high risk in your opinion. Anything that did extraordinary well during the pandemic, I stay away from. I saw a hotel deal on the beach that the normal market, you know, normal times they that would have sold for one hundred fifty thousand a key was they were trying to get three hundred thousand a key, and that's like high watermark all day long. I'm not going to set that watermark. So I like real estate. I like real estate on the water. If it's a lakefront, waterfront, anything, so. I would love to own that, but not right now. We, again, primary markets we stay away from just because we're not competitive. I mean, I, some of these bigger guys have access to so much cheap capital that we could never compete with them. And low ADR markets we stay away from because it's really hard to make money when your ADR is too low. You'll never hit your margins. Can you explain what ADR is? Oh, yes. Average daily rate. So it's like when you're booking online, if it shows a hundred bucks, like it's, you know, you average out all the rooms sold and what was that rate that was paid? So you referenced this in terms of leveraging the labor arbitrage and your strategy. And on the pre-call, you had a, a statement that you said you wanted to create the first of its kind hotel company moving forward. Could you maybe break that down a little bit for us, what your vision is? Yes. I think to do that, I have to explain a little bit more about... The specifics. And right now, the way that we look at it is a, a general manager has to 
right in the current state, a general manager is a mini CEO of small business. They got to know HR. They got to know accounting, how to code their expense line items. They got to know how about property maintenance. They got to know about sales and revenue management. And then on top of that, they got to be great at customer service because that's the primary job is to service the guest, right? Well, what we did is we came back and said, okay, I'm going to simplify that. I want the general manager to only focus on three things. I want them to make sure that the the property is kept up. I want to make sure that they control their labor costs because that's something within their control. And the third and most important thing is keep the guest happy. So if I was able to simplify that job description to those three things, now I don't have to pay a mini CEO level salary, $65,000, $75,000 a year on an 80-room Hampton in the Southeast. And I can... So it's really hard to do that unless you have a big staff, right? In the corporate office, well, in the United States, it would never work because you'd have to hire too many people and you could essentially do it, but your management company would never be profitable. You just have more and more people. But with this labor arbitrage, I'm able to do that. What we're doing is creating, using technology and people based in different countries is to create virtual teams that can take that portion of the general manager's responsibility. One, we'll call it six different portions, and we'll take three or four of those in each portion, and we will create our own process virtually that can handle it for them. And what that does is it has a network effect on all the other hotels. And then we use team-based management model where a lot of GMs are constantly talking to each other and using technologies like Slack and other very hotel-specific software to, again, big data, to get that out there, use it, and to make very smart decisions. But at the same time, simplify that model for the hotel managers. And our vision is to become the largest owner and operator of single family, I mean, it's a uh, select service hotels in secondary and tertiary markets in the United States. Well, and that was going to be my last question. You know, famously a very fractionalized, segmented industry, right? You referenced that Indian Americans are the largest owners of these select service hotels, oftentimes in secondary tertiary markets, much like Nashville and kind of middle Tennessee. What has prevented consolidation in the past? And, and why do you think your strategy will enable you to do it? I think what is, it's just, is part of our heritage. Like we're long-term, most Indians are long-term holders, investors, and they're in their local market and they're part of the community. They want to stay. And this has already been happening. We're already having discussions with, you know, and you said, are your uncles? And we call all of our investors uncles because this is yeah, a I mean, sign of respect. <laughs> For people who don't understand the culture, everybody's an uncle, right? An auntie, like people in your broader network. It doesn't necessarily have to mean your immediate family or even extended family. A term of endearment, maybe. I'm not sure. but Yeah, no, I agree. And it's just more of a, you know, like a sign of respect, you know. And for us, it's kind of showing that, hey, this is more of a relationship than it is just a transaction. Like we're not, so we're not trying to be a third party operator, which what's happening is now that we're, we're running into hotel owners that are, been around for 20, 30 years, seen all these cycles. And then their kids are went off to become doctors and engineers or lawyers. And look, they like the hotel industry. They don't want to sell their assets, but at the same time, they're not going to come back and run them. So the guys that are in their 60s and 70s, they I've had a lot of they've had a lot of success with me. Success with me like saying, hey Sonny, we're going to provide the capital. You can go do the work. You have development experience. You have this great management model. Now we want to grow. And we just want our kids to be involved, but more on a board level. So what we've done is kind of created a platform for that second generation hotel owner. And 
quite frankly, it's a lot easier for their kids. Like even the younger guy, probably maybe 10 years younger than me or whatever, wants to start building hotels. Well, I'm kind of like a mini mentor to him because I'm helping him avoid mistakes before they even happen. He doesn't have to start from the ground up. So we just become a resource pool and exchange. Now we're managing their hotels and it's a win-win because now with scale, we get buying power with the vendors. So now we're negotiating bigger contracts. So that's our plan. And we're being very methodical about that. It's not just anyone. We, we kind of let them become an investor first with our current deals. And then we see how the interactions go. And then if they ask us, we'll consider it. And then kind of an invite only type of deal. But our process works because I don't say we have full control of everything, but we need to be able to do what we need to do without I guess the one problem with third-party management is that a management company will try to cater to everyone's needs. Whereas we're like, look, this is how we're going to do it. And this is what works. If you trust the process, we'll work with you. If not, we're not going to be a good fit. And then no harm, no foul. Like we're not, uh, we're not going to hold it against you or, 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 or anything of that sort. But to answer your question, that's kind of what the platform we're trying to create. Awesome. Well, Sonny, thank you for joining us. I wish you the best of luck moving forward. I look forward to keeping updated with your progress. If people are interested in learning more about the work you're doing, your investment thesis, connecting with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch? So exactly for this reason, we we created a, a website, DesaiInvestmentGroup.com. And that's strictly a the investment platform. Our website, our, our normal company website is DesaiCompanies.com. And then our hotel company is DesaiHotelGroup.com. And then you can always reach out to me on LinkedIn directly. I don't know if you could put that in the show notes. A lot of people do that. Yeah, we'll put all that in the show notes so people can access the links and, and find you on LinkedIn easily. And thank you again for joining us. It's been great. And like I said, good luck. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.